Welcome to Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life, a broadcast of Purdue University Extension, where we cut through the hype, explore the science behind food and nutrition, and provide practical tips for incorporating healthful strategies into everyday life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life, where we look to dispel nutrition myths so you can make the most informed decisions for your health and lifestyle. This is Tanya, and I'm in the virtual studio today with Monica. And today we have a comment from our listener, Allison, who says, I want to set a resolution for improving my health, but I don't really know where to start. There is so much out there, and I don't know what actually works. Well, Allison, that is quite a full question you have on your hands. First of all, improving your health can look a lot. It can look like a lot of different things to different people. And it also depends on what your current health concerns might be. Or if you have a family history of any chronic disease, such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, so on. The other part of your question that can be tough to answer without a conversation is about knowing, quote unquote, what works. Again, This is going to depend on what your goal is. And as you noted, when it comes to nutrition and health messaging, there is so much out there um, just talking in our ears all day long, telling us to do this, not that. And we start to believe these messages, right? And incorporate them into our lives and may not even realize it, that we have come to believe these things that we've been told. Um, because it's it's being said to us so many times by society, by media, by popular culture. And we don't really stop to ask ourselves what our goals are. And if the things we are doing are actually helping us achieve our goals. Now, let me clarify. There is good, positive, accurate health messaging out there. But I feel like it is definitely outnumbered by the amount of fad-focused trends that aren't really fully about health. They just have this kind of guise that they're about health. But thinking about resolutions, um, so let's back up a bit. And the term resolution actually comes from the root word resolute, which means determined. Okay. A resolution can also be defined as the act of finding an answer or solution to something such as a conflict, a problem, and so on. And so we're going to, I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. But first, I want to think about resolutions in general as, I don't, as the trend that we see in the United States. And that is that um, I found a poll. It's a couple years old, but I'm I'm guessing this has not changed much. I've read these statistics many times and it said that 68% of people, okay, so that's about two thirds of people reported that their New Year's resolutions lasted for 32 days or less. So we're talking, there's 31 days in January. So February 1st is about as far as we typically make it. But then even more so than that, one in seven Americans say that they do not believe they will follow through on their resolution. And, and right out the gate, we're invoking a feeling of defeat and we are not setting ourselves up for success. Again, back to uh, thinking about the definition of that term resolution. If it means to be determined and we're setting a resolution we can't even determine to do, what, what, how, how are we setting ourselves up for success? And Tanya, I think it's interesting too that you have the um, finding an answer or solution to a conflict or problem in that definition. And, and so maybe too, we're not actually finding a solution 
to a problem or conflict. And that's part of the reason why we aren't following through on our resolutions because um, like we're not setting ourselves up for success because we haven't actually figured out what the problem is we're trying to fix before setting whatever resolution it might be. Right. And so many times um, I think the, the, the problem or the challenges is that folks are creating resolutions based on what they're being told being, being on based on these popular media messages and so we have two questions for you. Just like Monica said, what is your goal and is it, res- res- is it realistic? So thinking back um, to common resolutions, the top two resolutions throughout recent history anyway, are to eat healthier and lose weight. Now things changed a bit this past year and folks were rating their mental health as a top priority. And I think that's really important. I do a fair amount of work in mental health and I have my own theories about the relationship between um, mental health, nutrition and weight, but we can dig into that in another episode. Eating healthy and losing weight, top two resolutions typically in the United States. So striving to eat healthier should make every nutrition educator smile, right? And aiming to lose weight seems like an applaudable goal in our society. But what is your primary motivator for that goal? Was it something internal or external? Intrinsic or extrinsic? And like Monica said, what is the problem that you are trying to solve? For example, are you trying to reduce your cholesterol number or lower your blood pressure? Or are you primarily focused on outward appearance? In other words, are the resolutions you are setting actually for your health? And because weight loss goals are so prevalent, let's talk about weight loss. First, these types of goals are often steeped in guilt and diet culture. Weight loss is often sought after independent and separate from any health-related goal, meaning that our our society desires weight loss simply for the sake of weight loss too often. And I'm going to dig into some statistics. I love statistics. I think I overwhelmed Monica a little bit when I sent her my two pages of stits. But I think these are important to really dig into and understand just what what happens with our bodies during weight loss and, and what why so frequently the research can tell us why those types of resolutions fail. Um, but before we do that, I want to I wanna, um, just acknowledge that we're going to be using the terms of like normal weight, overweight, obese. And we understand that these terms are not preferred among those living in larger bodies. Um, but we are choosing to utilize these terms in order ref- to reference the classifications used in these research. So, for those of you who may or may not know, we're going to reference several times the NHANES um, surveys, which stands for the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. And so these are surveys that are conducted across the United States every year um, with approximately 5,000 people per year. And then they kind of aggregate this data in five-year increments, if you will. So it's a decent sized chunk of, of folks that they're surveying. And in a recent set of data from these surveys, it showed that three in five adults had a goal to lose weight. 57% of women and 40% of men had been on some type of weight loss diet in the previous year. It's again, like we said, it's a common thing in our country. Even more common among those who are overweight or obese, with 69% of women and 55% of men reporting that they were trying to lose weight in the prior year. But it's really ironic or um, counterintuitive what you might think 
that this hyper focus on body size also affects lean people of normal weight and even underweight people, including our younger folks. And this is particularly evident if you take body image into account. Um, and because those who have poor body image are more likely to attempt weight loss regardless of what size they are. In one study of over 16,000 university students where they had an overall BMI score, which would be considered on the low end of normal. So they were very low. I mean, they were low weight, but not underweight. So for those of you who are familiar with BMI terms, their overall BMI was 20.5 for women and 22 for men. And in, even then, 44% of the women and 17% of the men were trying to lose weight, even though they were already classified as normal weight and even on the low end of what um, those who use BMI scales would call uh, the normal weight. And moreover, more so than that, 20% of women in that low BMI category considered themselves a little too fat or too fat. We definitely have some skewed um, perceptions of, of body weight and image. And this is very concerning in and of itself, but that also trickles down to our younger and younger populations, and especially girls. Um, in one survey of fifth through 12th grade girls. Um, now, granted, this was a little bit of a smaller study. It was about 550 people. But 47% of those girls reported wanting to lose weight because of fashion magazine pictures. And in another study um, that examined about 11 to 12,000 boys and girls ages 9 to 16, half of the girls and a quarter of the boys reported making at least some effort to look like figures in the media. And this just trickles on and goes, it, you know, it just follows us throughout age. I'm surprised at only half, honestly, <laughs> especially when you're talking about our younger generation. Um, I mean, cause you say what they see in fashion magazines, but I'm just thinking uh, the influence that social media has over our younger population um, and how that's impacting their body image. And that could be a whole nother episode too. You know, I have a, a younger child who is growing up in the digital age and it just really uh, concerns me because I have no idea what he's being exposed to half the time. You can't, it's incredibly hard to control as a parent or a guardian. Um, but we digress. <laughs> Actually, Monica, so here um, I was just reading through my statistics again and it said that Girls as young as five years old were aware of dieting practices. And so this is a call out to parents to be just um, thoughtful about the way you talk about your body in front of your children. Um, but they also report that by the nine years of age, about 90 or about, sorry, about 40% of school age girls have attempted to diet and lose weight. That, that just kind of takes my breath away a little bit. Um, that statistic. And I know this is the purpose of our episode today is thinking about these statistics and what is our true goal of, are we looking at health or are we uh, just looking at body size? Um, but I do a lot of nutrition education with youth and I always make sure that I'm never speaking about weight anytime I'm talking about why we should eat certain foods. Um, and I do find that sometimes it is somewhat difficult when speaking to children to uh, 
not speak about weight. <laughs> um, so like, you know, don't eat that Twinkie because it's going to make you fat. Uh, that can be difficult. And to, and to tailor the message for them to care of why they should eat this. Um, cause oftentimes too, you know, I'm like, Oh, why are these carrots good for us? And it's always, Oh, they're healthy. Okay. Well, what about them are healthy? <laughs> you know, you got to go further than that. Uh, so relating it, if they're in athletics, relating it to their sports performance, um, that could improve, um, their, if they're very into academics or something, just how a proper nutritious diet can help, uh, with our academics, uh, those sorts of messaging, to help them. But I even talked to them too about disease prevention. Um, my family has a heavy prevalence of diabetes in our family. And so uh, the kids in my house are always wanting to eat candy, 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 candy. <laughs> and so I'm trying to allow them to eat candy, but still limit it and explaining to them that we have to be careful because we have a family history of diabetes. So consuming that much sugar is not good for us, but I don't tell them it's going to make them fat. Like that's the key. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. It is hard. I, it is hard, Monica. I would agree. And, um, my son is really, um, at that age where he's constantly measuring himself to see how much he's grown. And so I try to tell him like, these are the foods that are going to help you grow. <laughs> and, and that seems to have worked and it's true, right? Um, they don't, yeah. So, so that is really concerning for our younger children and just how that trickles to us. And for those of you listening, you may um, be seeing a pattern in your own life, even where you've been giving these messages um, over your lifetime or even subconsciously received the messages through the media um, that have impacted your perception of your own body and what health is. Um, but I did want to give a shout out too to our older adults because it, it, this trend in this uh, messaging that we've embodied in ourselves and in our society never really seems to go away. Um, because one study shows that 70% of women and 59% of older adults are still trying to lose weight. Um, and the ironic part of that is being slightly overweight in your older years is actually a protective health factor. Um, and dieting behavior is also problematic for this population because they are more vulnerable to nutrition deficiencies and loss of muscle um, and fat-free mass, including bone, um, which is a huge um, concern for over uh, older adults, particularly women, um, having those fractures and osteoporosis. Um, so when we think about, we have a lot of folks that are striving to diet. It's a common New Year's resolution. Um, but yet, if we listen to the media reports, they're still harping on us um, about weight. And then what happens is we enter this, um, this concept caused by dieting called weight cycling or yo-yo dieting, where individuals will lose the weight only to gain it back, um, typically within just a few years. And then the dieting cycle continues. Um, and this weight cycling um, prevalence is high, just as it is um, for the number of dieters. So another popular survey is the Nurses Health Study. And in this particular cohort, they followed um, over 46,000 women for four years. 78% um, of those women had... Um, intentional, had an intentional weight loss of at least five to 10 pounds, at least one time in those four years, 41% of those women 
had had a five to 10 pound weight loss two or more times in those four years. And 20% had lost 10 or more pounds three or more times in the past four years. So that's 10 pounds might not sound a lot, but when we're cycling it on and then off again, um, we have found that there is a direct association between weight loss and weight cycling and that those individuals who go through more weight cycling are more likely to gain more weight. So it becomes counterproductive in the end. And it also seems ironically that those who started off in a lower weight class were more likely to experience um, a larger spectrum of adverse events, such as a higher risk for metabolic or cardiovascular diseases. And the younger folks who experience weight cycling um, also have um, stronger and more consistent associations between weight fluctuations, so that weight cycling, and morbidity and mortality from coronary heart disease. Um, and these were these observations were in our youngest people. So it's becoming increasingly apparent that the weight cycling itself is perhaps causing more damage than the excess weight that we are carrying to start with. And nonetheless, no matter what you are, what age you are or what weight status you started at, when we have this weight cycling, we are experiencing wide fluctuations in a number of our biometric measures, such as our um, fasting blood glucose, triglycerides, um, HDL, which is our good cholesterol, um, our blood pressure is fluctuating, and our heart weight even um, going up and down. And our body is really finely tuned to keep us in balance. And so these frequent fluctuations caused by weight cycling could just be one explanation of why we have these unfavorable outcomes related to dieting. But if we take a look at this from a different angle, in our society, we have somehow decided that we can look at a person and know if they are healthy or not. We have visually equated thinness with health and fatness with lack of health. But here's a few more statistics for you. In again, in another round of the NHANES survey, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, they had a sample size of 40,000 people. They looked at blood pressure, triglycerides, cholesterol, glucose, insulin resistance, C-reactive protein, which is a, a marker of inflammation. And they looked at those who, and these are popular things that, that our physicians measure, right, for us every year to kind of gauge our health. Um, so they looked at these and they stratified individuals who were considered healthy based on these me measures versus unhealthy compared to their BMI. Nearly half of the overweight individuals, 29% of obese individuals, and even 16% of those who were classified as obesity type 2 or 3, had metabolic markers that deemed them healthy, meaning their cholesterol was fine, their blood pressure was fine, their fasting blood glucose was fine. But the flip side of that is that 30% of folks who fell in the normal weight range actually had risk factors in one or more of these measures, and so they were considered metabolically unhealthy. And so the consequence of this is that, one, using weight and BMI as our primary indicator of health overlooks folks who have markers of risk factors, but also it unnecessarily stigmatizes and categorizes those with normal biomarkers as unhealthy just because of BMI. 
This ha- this can result in healthcare stigma, unnecess- unnecessary recommendations, especially for weight loss, which we just discussed was counter-effective. So one last set of statistics that I want to share, and we've talked about this particular study before, and it is a really small population, so we always want to point out that we should be looking at um, various things about study quality and, and um, sample size is one of those things. So this was only 14 people. But the data is really startling, and so I feel like it's really worth mentioning, just just a tuck in the back of your mind. This is regarding a six-year follow-up with 14 participants in the Biggest Loser competition. So those of you who may recall, Monica, is this even still, is this still on, the Biggest Loser? I'm not sure. Okay. Well, it may <laughs> or may not. I can't this show, so I don't watch it. <laughs> yeah. So basically, they have folks who are, enter this program with some pretty intense exercise and dieting regimens to lose an extreme amount of weight in a very limited period of time. And for these 14 folks that were followed for six years after they participated in this competition, so let me back up, their weight, the average weight loss for these folks at the end of the competition was 128 pounds. However, their resting metabolic rate, so the amount of calories that we need just to exist and breathe, actually decreased by 610 calories a day. Now, this is a this is a normal phenomenon, right? When we lose weight, I I always um try to think about like the difference between a smart car and a Humvee and a semi. Like r- which one's going to need more fuel to get up the hill, right? So if we lose weight, our body requires less energy to move us about, which is why we plateau when we're attempting weight loss, one of the reasons. To note, they lost 128 pounds, their metabolism dropped by 610 calories a day, Um, but after those six years, 90 of those 128 pounds had been regained, and their resting metabolic rate was now down by 704 calories, so it had decreased even more over time. And those who had maintained a greater weight loss at six years also experienced more metabolic slowing. I think it's also important to note that the majority of weight lost in these competitions was actually fat mass and that our muscle mass, our fat-free mass was mostly preserved, um, likely due to the intense exercise training engaged in. And so this is really confusing to me that their outcome in their decreased metabolism um, was so high despite their preserving their lean muscle mass, right? Because we're often told, um, you know, if you do your strength training, maintain your lean muscle mass, that's what's going to really preserve your metabolism. So we're talking 128 pounds of fat loss. So, I mean, it still makes sense that we are decreasing that metabolic rate. But I, one thing I think is important to note about the Biggest Loser contest is, like you said, it was incredibly intense while on the show. And it's just that's not a lifestyle anyone lives. <laughs> so to maintain uh, mainly the exercise routine, to maintain that type of physical activity um, in your daily life is, is just not feasible. Yes. So back to resolutions. What are you basing your resolutions on? Are you going to buy one of these like shred DVDs, do it for three days and hurt yourself and then put it back on the shelf? 
But because this is a, a, a nutrition podcast, we want to get back to diet quality. And it should be noted that, yes, poor diet quality is associated with increased risk of mortality. Um, however, this should not be confused with dieting. In nutrition science, when we refer to diet, we are referring to the types and quantities of food that a person habitually eats. And striving to eat a variety of foods throughout the week is something that we talk about on nearly every episode. I don't know. Monica is smiling. Do we need to dig into that more? <laughs> well, we don't plan to quit the podcast, so I think we will continue to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So the foods we choose and the frequency intensity of our physical activity are certainly two important components to our health, but there's more to it than that. Okay. So we want to take a back, a step back from these common resolutions regarding like really strict eating or exercise habits and, and know that there is a, a more overall holistic perspective that we can look at. And there's a, a few different models or theories out there. Um, and depending on which one you look at, there's anywhere from six to eight categories, if you will, that encompass overall wellness. And physical well-being is certainly one in component, but it's only one component. The other areas of well-being include things such as emotional health, occupational, financial, spiritual, social, and so on. And the other important thing to know is that they are incredibly interdependent. For example, let's take someone who is experiencing a mental health challenge, such as grief or depression, um, and they may not be in a place to make optimal nutrition choices. You know, when I'm having a bummed out day, I certainly don't feel like going home and cooking a meal. So perhaps this person is more recommended for them or that it would benefit them better to have a goal of seeking social support, stress management skills, or mental health therapy as their primary objective. But improving their mental health can have a cascade effect on other components of wellness. So maybe their work performance improves. Maybe they get energy to leave a job they don't love. Maybe their nutrition improves because now they have the physical and the emotional energy to prepare dinner after a day's work. Maybe they are sleeping better and now have the time and energy to wake up a bit early for a morning workout. You know, the connections go on and on the way those are interrelated. And Tanya, one thing I hadn't thought about till just now with you saying this, so this may sound completely crazy, but a lot of times people are talking about how they lack the motivation to be, to, to live a healthier lifestyle. And um, I'm feeling like maybe... I'm not a huge motivation person, so I, I don't want to go down that route, but maybe our, your other uh, wheels on the um, wellness wheel um, elements aren't where they need to be. And that's why we're lacking motivation. So like you said, if you haven't got enough sleep or you're having a bum day from uh, some, I mean, life happens as uh, <laughs> so some mental health thing, that's why we're not taking care of our health. It's not it's not motivation necessarily. It's these other elements um, that we don't really take the time to think about that are going on in our life that cause us to not want to exercise or eat my vegetables today or whatever it might be. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's very true. And, uh, you know, I think we, as a society, we've come a long way, but we're still for popular media anyway, still really hyper-focused on um, just these few items that gets us a little bit off track. Kind of circling back around to Allison's question of what should you be doing, then we have to ask you again, what is your goal and what is your plan going to be? 
and it's important to remember that many times goals related to health are tricky to measure. Like it's, it's really hard to measure things like mental health, but it's more of developing positive health habits and knowing that over time that you can see those gradual improvements. So I'm going to post a link on our social media um, with a wellness wheel and resources that I found that I really like. It's from the University of New Hampshire, I believe. And so our challenge to you is to hop on over um, and check out that wellness resource. And I would ask you, um, just like Monica said, to rank yourself on how well you feel in each of these categories. Like which ones are, are you, do you feel like you're excelling at? Which one is maybe not scoring very high? And then pick one of those that didn't score so well. Maybe you pick the lowest one. Maybe you pick one that's in the middle because it's um, a little less intimidating to work on. But whichever one you pick, be sure to set small goals to work towards, right? And keeping a journal can be helpful to track your progress. And I'll be really transparent, even though I know that's true. And I know that in times when I actually do keep a journal, it helps me, but it's hard to keep up with it. Okay. So I'm just going to acknowledge that. The reason it can be so helpful is because these um, improvements are often so small and so incremental that we don't really see the changes happen. But if we can look back at our notes and reflect, we can realize how far we've come. And that in and of itself can be a, a motivation booster. I mean, if we want to find a different word here before we wrap up to describe that. But I would ask you also, if you do accept this challenge, to drop us a comment and let us know what goal you have set for yourself, because we would love to be cheering for you. Yes, absolutely. Go uh, drop that in there. But I, I think it's going to be important too. Uh, we talked a lot about weight loss in this episode, and I want to ensure that people don't think that uh, we're shaming you if that is your goal. Um, but maybe in order to help you keep that goal, it's going to be important to tie the weight loss to uh, improving your blood glucose level, improving your uh, blood pressure, whatever um, metabolic risk factor you might have, um, because that is truly the thing that is impacting your health, not your weight. Your blood glucose numbers is what's impacting your health, blood pressure, whichever. Um, so if we can focus on correcting those things, that that can help us provide that motivation maybe uh, that needs to be there in order to keep our resolutions. Um, but I also, I guess, what to a word of caution, of I, I've experienced many uh, medical practitioners who oftentimes look at that weight or your BMI and make some sort of uh, decision about you. So I, I want this episode, I guess, to help empower you too, that if you feel like your medical practitioner is treating you um, in any way based off your weight that you don't think is fair, then to find a new one. Because uh, there are people out there who do understand that weight is not our the determining factor of our health, um, that it's these other uh, elements. And I know I've shared on previous episodes trying to donate a kidney to my uh, my mother uh, who had um, some issues. And so it was my sister. And they automatically wouldn't let my sister uh, donate a kidney just to her weight. It had absolutely nothing to do with any of her metabolic uh, risk factors or not. And, and she's perfectly healthy when it comes to those. As you said, she would have fit in that 30% statistic that you gave her earlier of cardiometabolically healthy. And I know I've been places too that they were like, oh, you need a vitamin D calcium supplement when they haven't even taken my numbers or uh, <laughs> checked anything about me. Uh, so I just, I want to encourage you to make sure that when you are visiting those uh, medical providers to ensure they're taking 
your blood work and in, um, making sure that these things are askew um, before making any sort of recommendation of what you need to be doing. Very well said. I think that is a perfect conclusion. So with that, we are going to say um, thank you for joining us for this episode of Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life. Go ahead and hop over on Facebook or Instagram and check out those resources and drop us a note. And until next time, remember to ask questions, challenge the myths, and stay true to you.